Justin Nipper. I edit for FightGameMedia.com. I'm a staff writer over at F4W Online Wrestling Observer.com. And I'm back with Japan's leading pro wrestling author, historian, sociologist, broadcast journalist, all around wonderful person, Mr. Fumi Saito. Okay. Today we have a special episode for you, and it's focused on Vince McMahon. And his family's deep connections to the Japanese wrestling scene dating back, geez, more than 50 years. Uh, Fumi and I spent time talking about Giant Baba's first trip to Madison Square Garden. We talked about Vince McMahon, uh, his junior complex. We talked about Vince McMahon Sr.'s time in Japan showing up for New Japan. We talked about Antonio Inoki versus Bob Backlund and Tokushima for the infamous WWF World Heavyweight title match. We talked a lot about Hulk Hogan in Japan and how important that relationship was and how it led to the end of the New Japan WWF relationship in the 80s. And we also had to talk about the WWF All Japan New Japan Wrestling Summit 1990. As well as a little after that when WWE finally carved their niche out on Japanese cable television. Um, yeah, exciting, topical, let's get into it. But before that, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the Fight Game Media Network podcast feed. It's on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Downcast, wherever you usually listen to your podcast. Please do so if you haven't already, it helps us out a ton. And by the way, excuse me, I have a book out on Amazon called Stronger Than All. It covers all the New Japan Strong matches of the, fast, uh, the first two years of the show. And it's on Amazon Kindle. If you have Kindle Unlimited, you can read it for free. Check it out. All right, let's jump right in to Write That Down, our Vince McMahon in Japan special. Right. But it's been a big okay. It's been a big news that Vince McMahon retired, and it Huge was on Twitter. Yeah, it was on Twitter first. The Friday afternoon, one one o'clock in the afternoon, like seven eight hours before Friday Night SmackDown that night, and sure enough, that 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 night of the Friday Night SmackDown, Stephanie McMahon opened the show with her announcement: "My father retired today." And uh, yeah, and uh, it's been yeah, it's a good, it's a big news, big news. But over yeah, um, f- for the past how many months? Like six months? This, this sex scandal thing and other things that uh, yeah, it's been a big news in the states. But the Japanese media hasn't really covered that as much as they did in the states. You know what I'm saying? Mm, it's a uh... I mean, sometimes there are stories that are bigger or more highly valued in the States than in Japan and vice versa. You know what I mean? Vice it's, versa. Yep. I remember this is off, off tangent a little bit, but when I was still living in Japan, I remember there was um, there was some uh, uh, there was a guy, I think it was in uh, like, was it Yokohama or something or Kanazawa area? He was in a retirement home and he 
he ended up stabbing a lot of old people. Oh, uh, old people and and challenged people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in the West, it was huge news. I had people like texting me. It's like, oh my god, what happened? Are you okay? Are you there? I mean, I was far away from it. I was, yeah, I was. Yeah, are you okay? Out, yeah, because yeah. I was, I was hours and hours away from this, but uh, it was a huge story over in the West. But I didn't see. I saw hardly anything in Japanese media about it because it was also the month that Pokemon Go was at the absolute craze. It was big news, though. I it followed was, it. It was big, but people were not talking about that, or, or I'm not talking about the people, but the media. It would be a, uh, it would treat, it was treated like a smaller story. It felt like compared to how people you in the did. West were 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 uh, right, telling because it's a little sensationalized. Oh, I'm not so proud of that because it was a big issue. That it's not just one crazy guy stabbing a whole bunch of people, but it was the issue that uh, uh, challenged people, handicapped people, and that the old useless citizen mm. can be eliminated. Like a, such a Nazi, you know, that type of, you know, philosophy behind it. It was like, a, yeah, it was a sickening. Yes. Mm -hmm. it, it was just i bring it up just because sometimes in the west and in japan sometimes we have the same story and it's um projected differently or it's right the same thing uh but you know like a way back in 1994 that vince mcmahon died for steroid trial right, right? Mm -hmm. every day you know the for the two-week trial you know every day that they covered news you know who was on the witness or who took a stand and then it, it was not as big in 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 japan at the time the, the vince mcmahon wasn't as famous back in 1994 in japan i'm talking about yeah right so we covered it in wrestling magazine but the not not too many um you know the, the mainstream news covered it. It was uh, American wrestling promoter indicted to steroid distribution and all these things in the FBI and, and uh, yeah. But uh, I think it wasn't covered are, as much. Yeah, there are stories over here that I mean, you, you not only have to report the action of what happened, but there's a lot of different context, like a steroid law and, and use of steroids in the States versus in Japan. You have to explain a lot of different uh, background. Right, right. Oh, definitely. Most definitely. So I think sometimes if there's so much uh, explaining that must be done in an article that's going to yeah, come to out. Yeah, to start reading a story or knowing about the story people and are just it. Yeah, they're going to simply, uh, you know, check out. It's just, it's not... If you're just a regular Japanese person, it's just not that. Sometimes it's not worth it to investigate all of this info unless you are already very interested in it. And right, I think sometimes yeah. these stories you can't explain it in a minute. You know? It's, oh no, not at all. And I think, it, and sometimes stories from the West get lost because ultimately they're not that important to the big picture. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, uh, Abe was just shot. I mean, I think. There are different things on people's minds in Japan right now than uh, mm -hmm. Vince McMahon's uh, sex life. So, and yeah, I think a, lo yeah. a lot of people will probably see it just like over here and go, "Oh, it's maybe that's just a part of you know, part of the show." Especially that, if you're a casual. Oh, fan. even even some some wrestling fans think still think it's a big angle that uh, Vince McMahon retired or or resigned or you know that he still be producing show. Right? It's like, mm. No, he's not. But yes, but uh, this is our role uh, to you know share what we know, and uh, there were big relationship 
between Japanese wrestling industry and McMahon family goes all the way back to 1962 or three, 1962, because oh, 1962, meaning that the World Wrestling, Worldwide Wrestling Federation, WWWF, don't even start until 1963. And uh, Giant Baba toured New York and had a single, you know, important single match against people like Argentina, Argentina Rocca or young Bruno San Martino at Madison Square Garden in 1962. And uh, it was a year before that uh, foundation of WWWF. Yeah. So you could see the roots of the company today, they're tied to Japan still, even to the McMahons, even back then. Oh, yes, yeah. And there was a comic book series, Giant Typhoon, that I read as a kid, that uh, they had Vince McMahon in it, but uh, they didn't have probably have the photo of you know Vince McMahon Sr. So what happened, what, 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 what was on, on, on Giant Typhoon comic book series? It doesn't even look like Vince McMahon. He's a bald-headed guy from New York. You know, so, <laughs> Just yeah. an imagination of what he might look like. It looks like a Tootsmont, more like. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah so, Tootsmont is, is technically, you know, he, he's, it's not WWWF, but it was the, in the roots of the Capital Sports and what right, became right. Exactly. Exactly. WWF. WWWF. Right. And at the time, Vincent James McMahon, the McMahon Sr., was the promoter from Washington, D.C. and Madison Square Garden. So yeah, yeah. I, I guess with, with, if people aren't familiar with Vince Senior, what would how would you compare him to uh, Vince McMahon of today? I mean, what were the big differences? Would you say coming between those two? Uh, the one that, for the older generations of Japanese wrestling fans, when you say McMahon, it means J Vince McMahon Senior. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, like for the longest time, you know, until all the way to like almost nineties, that the, this Vince we know. The Vincent Kennedy McMahon was always referred as Vince McMahon Jr. in Japan. Which apparently he hated. Oh, God, he hated it. Oh, of course. That's why there are no juniors in WWE. That's why there's oh, no God, Rey Mysterio Rey Jr. Mysterio was Jr., but they took that. Or Ted DiBiase should have been Ted DiBiase Jr., right? sure. the younger DiBiase. Or Cowboy Bob Orton. It's mm -hmm. Bob Orton Jr. in Japan, you know, always. But he took that often. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure that he hated the the word itself, the junior. You know, I think that's a, almost like a stigma. You told me that even Motoko Baba would refer to him as junior up until ah, uh, because they met, um, Jan Baba and Mrs. Baba Motoko Baba met this uh, Vincent Kennedy McMahon when he was 19 at Madison Square Garden. 19 year old Vince running around the backstage of Madison Square Garden with his bow tie on. Yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah it's interesting to see the people of power in japan have a very specific image of vince as a son uh for older generation fans but for the different generation of japanese fans who started watching wwe from let's say uh like attitude era stone sure. cold and rock you know in the triple h era that that uh it was like an, a, just completely another television show that uh, they got you know the whole new generation of Japanese wrestling fan hooked, you know, really hooked. You know, wow, this is a great show, right? Mm -hmm. That was uh, Monday Night War era, 
and you know one one of the the, the satellite channel had Monday Nitro, and, the, and another channel had uh, Monday Monday Night Raw. So it was like a small portion of the Monday Night War going in Japanese TV industry too. And it was a time when the, not the the cable TV was never that big over here. Probably like a landscape that uh, it's more like a satellite dish era, like late nineties. That I have little satellite dish outside my you know the balcony too but uh, the when you know sky perfect tv the cs channel cs is like a communication um uh satellite that you have to buy a tuner and satellite dish for your home to hook up with sky perfect tv and they give you 300 channels or something those 300 channel with sports channel that they had wwe package in it you know mm-hmm. and uh they pretty much, you know, were able to gain the whole new generation of, you know, Japanese wrestling fans. Even the even the fans that don't follow local Japanese wrestling, they still watch, started watching WWF programming in Japan with subtitles, just like movies. Is this wrestling or is this kind of skit? You know, it was yeah. a whole new. It new seems thing. like <clears throat> it, the the current fan base too it treats it almost like like you said, like it's. It's wrestling, but it's almost like uh, if soap opera, or if like Cirque du Soleil came to town. It's this international show, live course, entertainment yeah. show from you know, it's looked at as a show from America, and they're going to do a specific thing. And I know I, I noticed at a lot of the Yogoku shows that WWE used to have, there would be so many WWE cosplayers, people dressed yeah, up like they're their favorites. Ju- like a- they are WWE fans. Yeah. yeah. So I, I some has, of them don't even follow cost, the, the local wrestling. Yeah, right. Amazing. Right. It, it's just like a um, separate genre. Almost. Yes. Yeah. Separate genre, or like they're more like uh, you know the Universal Studio fan or Disney World fan. Yeah. It's like yeah. It's treated like a another IP, like an intellectual property, like the Avengers or, or yeah, I don't yeah, know, something like Sil- that. Silk, Silk Soleil, yeah. Yeah, or like Harlem Globetrotters or something. Yeah, yeah, so it was like that. But then again, they they had their own audience, so that's their success in Japan. It's true, It's and that's pretty, I mean, thinking about I how mean, the... I mean, the hardcore fans, of, of course, hardcore fan base always watch everything, everything. From New Japan to Old Japan to UWF style to FMW deathmatch style to women's wrestling to the, then you have American wrestling. Oh my God, you know. And, I think uh, what it showed is how deep the market for pro wrestling is in Japan, and it was in Japan because yeah, culture. It's they didn't not have cult, to, you know. Yeah, they they didn't have to eat into the current Japanese market. It seemed like WWE was able to borrow a little bit from the current market but they kind of created their own micro market within japan so yeah they they did though yeah and also 2002 on that they had the japan tour every year sometimes twice mm-hmm. raw tour and smackdown tour or the super show tour and 2002 every year all the way all the way till 2019 and until this covid pandemic yeah they haven't been here three years now but uh yeah uh, they had their own market, kind of like that. The, some rock concert that comes every year, every yeah, yeah, like every July. Yeah, WWF had their own show, like annual event, once yeah, a year, pretty much big show. And they'd often have these uh, 
very kind of special matches that they could only put on in Japan or they'd only do in Japan. Like, I mean, you put like Chris Jericho with like uh, Cesaro and they'd do 20 minutes or more, something that you yeah, would see on or television. Yeah, when, when Chris Jericho wasn't even on TV in America, he still, you know, joins the tour. Right. Something special for the Tokyo crowd. There was always something that you could only get Yeah, like a different there. treatment for like a people like a Finn Balor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the guy, the guys who had uh, sort of a following in Japan already got some uh, the, the And yeah, one year they had the main event, Triple H against Tajiri title match for the main event. Yeah, something so like that. It was always, yeah, it was made to be special. special. Because it was how, basically house shows, you know? Mm-hmm. They put yeah, a couple on the uh, stopping, WWE yeah, stopping, yeah, Yeah, and then stop in California, and then probably have a show in Hawaii, and come to Japan, and then go all the way to down to, like, Australia, you know, or the, the Singapore or something, you know? It's like part of the world tour. But uh, we, we got to do a little history lesson here. Like we said, Jan Baba uh, touring in America, uh, 62 and 63 to 64, that uh, he worked dates uh, the main event uh, for, uh, at the Madison Square Garden, Giant you know, Papa against uh, you know, Antonino Rocker or young Bruno Sammartino before it was WWF, you know. And uh, yes, the, the, the champion Bruno Sammartino toured Japan like 67, 68, you know, wasn't really affiliated as WWF. He did, you know, Bruno Sammartino did bring the, the WWF championship belt around, you know, he wore that belt around his waist, but he wasn't defending WWF title in Japan. Instead, Bruno San Martino challenged Giant Baba's international heavyweight title in Japan, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Yeah. But did that a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it wasn't WWF. It wasn't until 1974, Antonio Inoki uh, signed a deal with senior Vince McMahon in 1974. The business partnership would last all the way till like 1985. Right up until Hulk Hogan. Uh, even after WrestleMania 1. See, Hulk Hogan becomes WWF champion for the first time in January of 1984, right? By beating Iron Sheik. Everybody knows that. But even after that, he leaves America and comes to New Japan and honor his tour wearing black trunks with Ichiban on it with silver wrestling boots not like yellow boots and yellow trunks and uh, he still took the, the New Japan the, the schedules you know all the way to like the, the fall of 1985 see very first Wrestlemania I'm talking about Hulk Hogan Mr. T against Paul Ondorf and Roddy, Roddy Piper right mm-hmm. even after that he still toured Japan New Japan and there was a working relationship with this Vince McMahon and Inoki, 84, 85. But uh, uh, Vince McMahon decided to pull all the WF talent from Japan. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody but under the giant then. That uh, Hulk Hogan, the, you know, the, the Adrian Adonis, the Bob Orton, the Paul Ondorf, the, all these WWF talent stopped coming to Japan at one point. Yeah. It was different, yeah. But uh, yes, be- between 1974 all the way to 1985, yeah, there was a working relationship uh, with 
Antonio Inoki's New Japan Pro Wrestling and Vince McMahon Sr.'s WWF or WWF. And uh, the champion that the, who toured New Japan the most was Bob Backlund era. Yeah. That's right. He was sort of a, a regular face Re- alongside regular. Hulk Hogan. Yeah, well, the Hulk Hogan came in. See, the Hulk Hogan actually had like a two run with WWF. Initial run, 1979, 1980, 1981 run. It was the Hulk Hogan, uh, the heel Hulk Hogan with the white trunks. Remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The cape? It was, yeah, it was Freddie Blassie. Yeah. That's how he came to Japan for the first time. Then made a tag team with Stan Hansen, then working, still working for New Japan at the time. There was an instant hit that uh, probably Anthony Inoki recognized something in how Ho- young 28-year-old Hulk Hogan, in, in, you know, something before Vince had a plan for national expansion. So pretty much that the Hulk Hogan was a key person of the relationship too. And pretty soon, 80, 81, 83, Hulk Hogan was pretty much regular with New Japan. And Very he popular was, with the crowd. Yeah, yeah. And he was dividing his time with AWA, you know, AWA Minnesota, AWA, and half the year in Japan. He used to come with the Hulk Hogan, 81, 82, 83. He used to come to Japan like five, six tours a year, spending what the, up to 15 weeks in Japan. That's a lot of tours. Mm-hmm. And tag team partner was Inoki. Then uh, inaugural 1983 uh, IWGP tournament final was Inoki against Hulk Hogan. You would think Inoki will beat Hulk Hogan to become the uh, inaugural tournament champ, you know, winner of IWGP. Instead, Hulk Hogan beat Anthony Inoki and actually wore original IWGP, that the black leather belt in the ring. Mm-hmm. So he was big, huge star before Hulk Hogan was big, huge star in Japan before he was national expansion superstar of WWE, WWF, I should say. He was Ichiban Hulk Hogan. Ichiban Hulk Hogan, right? But Ichiban actually was not his original uh, line. That the that the word Ichiban was used by Dick Byer, the Destroyer, in seventies. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Ichiban so just... meaning number one. Yeah. Mm. And he borrowed but, it, he put it on his tights, I think he put it on his boots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also around that t- same time period, he was on, on, on Rocky Three movie, right? So that made him even more famous, because that the Rocky Three movie was big hit both America, in, in both America and in Japan. That's right, he was Thunderlips. Thunderlips. And uh, he had one, one of the costumes he had in Japan had Thunderlips on it, and, and on, on his back. One of the kimono jacket, he had like a thunder lips written on it. So he had a lot but, uh, of momentum at around the early '80s time. Yeah, big momentum, and also learn how to be like a super baby face mm-hmm. uh, by standing right next to Inoki and spend time with Inoki. You know, a lot of the things he does. I saw Inoki, Inoki's enziguri to Hulk Hogan's big leg drop, big comeback with the one through three punch. That's Inoki's Hulking punch. up. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, Inoki. Yeah, that's so Inoki. Yeah, actually. So it's really funny to go back and, and, and you know, watch videos that the, the way, you know, Inoki makes big comeback with his, you know, knuckle, you know, close fist punch. It's so much like, like Hulk Hogan, you know, three years later. And I, I recommend anybody go on to uh, the New Japan World, if you have it, and search for, <clears throat> excuse me, Hogan 
in New Japan when he was going against Abdul the Butcher. Because this was two ish, yeah, maybe a little later, but it was the first. It, you could really see he was hulking up, but you could see where he got. Yeah, from, yeah, he was, he was right. You could see him doing his own version of what Inoki would do when he's really fired up yeah. and ready to go. A little bit was taken from actually uh, Varun Von Raschke in AWA too. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I can see that. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, yeah, so this is like a. When one one wrestler becomes like a super huge superstar, you adapt you know portion of things from you know like other like past superstars, of course, mm. and uh, you can clearly see Antonio Inoki influence on early Hulk Hogan. Very much so. Very yeah, much so. Yeah. And the eighty two and eighty three, I believe, uh, eighty one and eighty two. Then the Inoki won the Inoki and Hulk Hogan won the tag team ta- uh, that uh, championship. Uh, it was a Madison Square Garden Tag League in December, MSG League. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So that, that tells you the big relationship between WWF and New Japan Pro Wrestling at the time. Spring tournament, you know, usually you have singles round robin tournament in spring in Japan, right? It was for the for five year period, it was Madison Square Garden Series. And that the November to December tag team league tag team tournament round robin tournament was called M- Madison Square Garden Tag League tournament. So it's like a Madison MSG here and MSG there. It's like a Madison Square Garden, the mecca of pro wrestling kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. So one year Inoki and Bob Backlund team together, and following year it was Inoki and Fujinami. But the third year it was Inoki and Hulk Hogan, and Hulk Hogan turned total babyface. And uh, I think the tournament final was against Killer Khan and, and uh, Tiger Chun Li. Typical heel, huh? Oh, yeah. And uh, Tiger Chun Li, <laughs> yeah. another person who would show up in WWF at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Too. yeah. Yeah. And then also during this 19, between 1974 and 1985 working relationship, you not just Bob Backlund, but you have people like Pedro Morales, the, uh, you know, whomever had this program. With oh, oh superstar Billy Graham, of course, or oh, Dusty Rhodes, American Dream, Dusty Rhodes through New York, and uh, yeah, it's all the superstars you read on magazine from like a you know coverage of Madison Square Garden that the once a, once a month big spectacular that the exact same superstar will come to New Japan like a couple months after that. We were mm. so excited as a kid. And whomever challenged Bob Backland at the time, you usually have three months program, right? First right. month, you know, the, the big heel shows up, Madison Square Garden initial match, this big heel challenger, you know, let's say like a Superfly Jimmy Snuka heel version, that he challenged Bob Backland. The first month, he beat Bob Backland count out or something, right? Mm-hmm. Then second month, second month you have double DQ, you know. Then 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 the third month you have either cage match or uh, the lumberjack match or the the, the 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 some third match programming that settle the score kind of thing. Then somehow these heels like you know like a top challenger of Bob Backlund kind of leaves the territory, right? Where did they go? They came to Japan. Mm-hmm. But because there was no internet, TV didn't cover right. internationally. Nope. It was like they just disappeared. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, because we have to remember there were territories. You know, like a, a Bob Backlund's challenger come from 
Crockett's North Carolina territory or NWA Florida territory or sometimes, you know, come from Dallas, Texas or or from Midwest AWA or yeah, there's there's a ter- healthy independent territories. Those were you know pretty you know big territory when you see you know see on the map. Uh, it covers a lot of areas. And there were good fifteen territories all the way till you know nineteen eighty four Vince McMahon's national expansion. And that Japan was almost like a, another territory that the American superstars can travel to. Definitely. And some yeah. would stay longer than others. Some would pop up once or twice, and that was it. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course, you know, when Stan Hansen became huge, big rival of Anthony Inoki in 77, 78, 79, all the way to 80, that he had a big program you know, against Bruno San Martino and big, another big program against Bob Ackland. Mm. So he, Stan Hansen initially came to New Japan as WWF superstar, but instead he stayed and signed the contract and became New Japan superstar. Then later on, in the end of 1980, 81, uh, starting January of 1982, that he became all Japan superstar yeah, at the time. You know, it was also around this time, more towards the mid-80s, 84, 85, this was when Hulk Hogan and Bruiser Brody just uh, almost crossed paths in WWE New Japan. Almost crossed paths. And uh, I believe at the time, I asked, you know, I had a lot of interviews with Brody at the time, and he was under the impression that he'll be working New Japan dates and WWE dates. Like Hogan was. Yeah. Yeah. But then again, a 1985 version version of Hulk Hogan on national tour that uh, Bruiser Brody would become just another one of the one of his challenger. Mm-hmm. One of the and probably monthly monsters. Yeah, like you know, like Bruiser Brody wouldn't be Bruiser Brody of Japan. That he would be just like magnificent, magnificent Morocco or Big John Stud or you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, he initially thought that the, he could take New Japan booking dates half the year, and half the year he would be working WWE, WWF, I should say. That, but that he pretty much found out that that the treatment he'll get, that he'll be pinned by Hulk Hogan's leg drop one, two, three, all over the country, right? Right. Yeah, and then uh, that news or even videotape will come to Japan. That no good, you know. Then uh, I guess Bruiser Brody decided not to, you know, do the business with WWF. And around the same time, it was Vince McMahon, Vincent Kennedy McMahon, that uh, he wouldn't be sending any American talent to New Japan. It's like 1984, 1985 was, was the year that, if you remember, WWE had three crews, A team, B team, C team, three different towns, three different shows, house shows. And in 85 and 86, they were running some 900 house shows a year. Remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Crazy. You know, one show was Hulk Hogan, one, another show was Roddy Piper, and third show would be something like Hacks or Jim Duggan or something. They always used to do that where I was growing up. When I grew up in the Albany, New York area, they would have one show. They give you a seashore? There would be off. So they'd run MSG on the main day, like a Saturday or Friday night. And yeah there would be a split of shows that would be split up between Poughkeepsie, Albany, and usually out west, like Syracuse, Rochester. Still New York, but it's far yeah. enough. But, know? like, you know, uh, 
Hacksaw Duggan would headline one because he's from the area and Ultimate Warrior right. would headline the other one and Hogan would go to do Madison Square Garden. So it was always, yeah, it was set up like they were like just... Like three shows, yeah. yeah. And they were, it was everywhere. And, yeah. And that was before your pay-per-view technology even. See, like, see, today's fans, you know, think pay-per-view is like old-fashioned, right? Yeah. No, it was like pay-per-view market the universe wasn't all that big because you have to have the, the certain tuner at home. You have to have basic cable or satellite dish to even watch the regular show. Then to have pay-per-view, you still have to have that box at home. Then you can purchase it. And the whole the universe wasn't even that, that the pay-per-view universe I'm talking about wasn't even like millions and millions yet, you know. And all the way to WrestleMania 3, they were still doing closed circuit uh, feed too mm-hmm. yeah so this is technology that you know changed wrestling too but the wwe always was with top i mean top of this technology thing when pay-per-view was becoming a thing yes of course pay-per-view becoming thing for wwe and uh yeah let's get back to this that the business partnership with japan uh, as of 85 see even after wrestlemania one you know, the Hulk Hogan, Mr. T, and Roddy Piper, and Paul Orndorff, and Jimmy Snooker's in the corner, and then uh, Ace Bob in the other corner, and Muhammad Ali, referee, that uh, Liverace, that uh, what's the, the the Yankees manager, Billy Martin, and all these people. Cindy Even Locker. after, of course, of course, I, yeah, you never forget Cindy Lap. That pretty much was a renaissance of your Vince McMahon vision of professional wrestling before he used the word sports entertainment yet but uh, that's when people think they stop you know like a, uh, vince stopped sending wrestling you know, wwe supers to japan it already maintained all the way till like end of 85 how kogan still toured all japan after wrestle initial wrestlemania people don't know about that but the tag team tournament of 84 i uh, 80 yeah, 84 because he was already champion. That uh, he and Samu, the wild someone, mm-hmm. was tagged in partner. He started the tour and they ran the angle that uh, Big Juice, you know, that the, the, you know, the first first tag team tournament, you know, match that the, uh, Hulk Hogan got bloodied up and then he was injured, sort of injured. Yeah, I'm using my fingers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. "Quote unquote injured." Yeah, injured, and Halcon had to leave the tournament early, so the forfeit all these tournament matches. Then that was the end of the regular Halcon. That Vince McMahon altogether st- stopped sending Halcon and other WWE superstars to New Japan Ring in end of '85. That was it. Different yeah. era. It was a different era from then on. Yeah, that's when New Japan signed the deal with world class Von Erich people and some uh, the signed the deal with Bill Watts. You, you, that the you, uh, before UWF then it was like a mid south, right? Sure. And uh, they had you know the the Joe Daigo in, in Calgary that pretty much started like a one by one you know they discover new talent like a conga the barbarian the kokina before he, years before he was yokozuna or he you know new japan book people like a punisher dice morgan who becomes undertaker years later and uh real young scott hall um freelancing 
Bud Sawyer, the, the, uh, yeah, of course, Van Erickson, all the new American face stars started coming to New Japan ring. It was an interesting era. Mm-hmm. Of course, Orin Hart, new star from, yeah, um, Calgary. Mm-hmm. And it was a time, 1984, Stu Hart sold his Stampede Wrestling to w, uh, Vince McMahon, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, in the exchange, Bret Hart, Jim Neidhart, Dynamite Kid, Davy Boy, these four wrestlers would sign with, with WWF. And you know the history. But Dynamite Kid and Davy Boy Smith wanted to honor Japan schedule too. You know, that they kept working WWE dates and New, New Japan and they switched at the end of 83 to change affiliate to All Japan. But still, took all the Japanese schedules, Dynamite Kid and Davy Boy, yeah. But pretty soon, the, the Vince McMahon pulled, pulled them from all Japan too. That's when, I guess, Vince McMahon uh, became kind of heel to Japanese audience, huh? Mm. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, he, he abandoned uh, what they had going. Well, he abandoned and what And Japanese press, including, including myself then at the time, we didn't realize that there was never Vince McMahon Jr. on WWF television. Even when he was an announcer, you know, doing the interviews and promos, mm-hmm. that the, the writing, the tell-up appears on the screen, Vince McMahon, right? Mm-hmm. Never had Jr. on it. <laughs> but in Japanese press, press media, always referred him as Vince McMahon Jr. because of his father. He was his- a big, big figure. His father yeah. was a known figurehead uh, and would be at a lot uh, not of shows. The, but the, the, more than figurehead because he actually signed the deal. Sure, with, yeah. You know, Japanese wrestling at the original JWA, uh, Nippon Pro Wrestling. He sent Bruno San Martino or, and other WWE superstar after their run in New York that would, would be sent. You know, if you remember... Bruno San Martino and Ray Stevens, big program in New York, right? Mm-hmm. Grudge program, 65, 66, 67, somewhere. That Ray Stevens and Bruno San Martino, after their feud in, you know, in, in WWF, they would travel to Japan together and tour together. And uh, not too many you know, American fans found out that Bruno San Martino and Ray Stevens at the time, they tagged him together in Japan. Yeah. It's like, you could live a different, yeah, you could uh, do totally different, different universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But this, uh, at the time, you see, American superstar only come to one superstar, come to only come to Japan maybe once or twice in lifetime, right? Sure. Not, not until, special. Yeah, very special. Bruno San Martino altogether, probably in his 30-year career, only made seven tours to Japan altogether. He did come back to Japan as a commentator, or he attended Giant Baba's memorial and all these things. But the San Martino era, they didn't really have regular you know, appearance. It was it, only special what, occasions, big, big matches. Yeah, therefore, see, in Japan, American superstar meant like Abdullah the Butcher, the Taigajit Singh, the, those were regular in superstar in Japan. Mm-hmm. Male maskers, of and course, Story and Terry Funk, Sheik, yeah. And uh, of all people, like, in New Japan's, you know, the, the World League tournament final was Antonio Inoki against Killer Carl Krupp or somebody like that, you know. Mm. And then, then 
that uh, Vince McMahon Sr. comes in the ring and give big trophy to Anthony Inoki in 1974 and sign, you know, announce that uh, New Japan and the WWWF uh, signed the partnership. That's when, yeah, Under the Giants start showing up regularly because it was Vince McMahon Sr.'s idea that that they was, Under the Giant was always under Vince McMahon Sr.'s contract, you know, pretty much exclusively. But Vince McMahon Sr. was so smart that uh, you don't want to keep Under the Giant in one place that will wear out. You know, it has to be the, you know, like a special attraction. Therefore, Under the Younger Under the Giant was more like a, Vince McMahon Sr.'s ambassador that goes to every single territory, right? Mm-hmm. In America, Australia, Mexico, Canada, even Europe, that every time Under the Giant make appearance, it's, it'll be like a mega show for any territory. You do the heavyweight, you know, super heavyweight battle royal or something and, uh, you know, work all over the place. And Under the Giant starts spending 10 to 15 weeks a year, every year, between 74 to 85. I mean, he was New Japan regular. Antonio Inoki against under heel under the giant. I don't remember. I don't know how many times that happened. You know, that was when Andre actually really wrestled, though. I mean, like a serious looking single match against Antonio Inoki. Andre had, People should go, he had yeah. great matches around that time with Inoki, with Stan Hansen, Hogan. Yeah, yeah. Well, the earlier Inoki single match, single program. I mean, like a serious-looking single match. Like Inoki gives him um, short arm scissors, key lock, mm-hmm. and you know that Andre picks Inoki the whole body up, you know, and the uh, suplex and reverse suplex, you know, each other. I mean, Inoki and Andre. <laughs> I'm just suplexing each each yeah. other though. Andre was yeah. much more mobile. At the time. And actually a good athlete. Yeah. You know, people don't know about it. Yeah. I think he was but, maybe uh, a little leaner or, or, or slimmer and able to and move more didn't have bad back. Yeah. 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 But um, even still. So that was like uh, uh, the, part, the, the partnership between Ma- uh, Vince McMahon Sr. and Anthony Inoki in New Japan really worked. Yeah. Yeah. And all these superstars from WWF, one after another, they you know start showing up, you know, have a single match program against Antonio Inoki. Of course, Antonio Inoki beat every single one of those super WWE superstars, but uh, it was good. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. All the way to people like Jesse Ventura, Adrian, Adrian Adonis, Ken Patera, all these '80s superstars too. Yeah. So if we fast forward a few years from Vince McMahon Jr. taking over doing WrestleMania, so ultimately uh, splitting the relationship between WWF and New Japan. Yeah, and then also there was a thing, uh, I believe it was 1979, that uh, Antonio Inoki beats Bob Backlund in That's Tokushima right. to mm-hmm. become WWF champion. If it was, if it was Giant Baba and Harley Race, you know, Harley Race dropping NWA title to Baba, but the end of the tour about two weeks later, or even a week later, and one show that the Baba will drop the NWA title back to Harley Race, so he goes home with, as a champion. Came in as champion, dropped the title for a week, and get the title back, and go home. Like, nothing happened, right? Mm-hmm. And in Tokushima, uh, 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 October of 1979, Inoki beats Bob Backlund. To become very first Japanese wrestler to become uh, 
to be WWF champion, right? Hmm. And you would think he would drop the title back to Bob Backlund uh, like a week later in Tokyo, right? Mm-hmm. And he actually, Inoki didn't even do it. Instead, he forfeit the title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that the reason was that the Tiger Jit Singh interfered the match and destroyed the title match. And the uh, saying was that Inoki did not want to have title in this way, and he's going to forfeit the title. So he never lost. It's another thing that Hogan learned from Inoki. <laughs> Probably uh, very political, but the maneuvering and also the, the good enough storyline that the people buy it. You know, mm-hmm. right? Tiger Jit Singh interfered the, the the sacred title match. It's a big title from New York City that the Madison Square Gardens World Championship belt. Inoki didn't want to have title that way. Uh, I hate Tiger Jit Singh. <laughs> mm-hmm. How's that? And he forfeit the title though, but it was it gets even more complicated because in Japan that well. And Japan and the entire wrestling press media community that they agree, you know, go with the storyline that Inoki forfeit the title, right? So the title is vacant in the mean, you know, I mean, at the time, and he goes back to Madison Square Garden next month, next the Madison Square Garden, you know, once a month show, that the title will be up for grab, and they will do Antonio Inoki against Bob Backlund in Madison Square Garden, you know, for the vacant WWE t- title. And when when all the Japanese press, you know, when they get there, it will find out that the, uh, the Vince McMahon Sr. changed the lineup, okay? And uh, it was Antonio Inoki defending his World Martial Arts title against Iron Sheik in one match, okay? Mm-hmm. And the, in Japan, Title, the vacant title up for grab, Bob Backlund against Big Bad Bobby Duncan. Wow. And yeah, in, if you're sitting in the Madison Square Garden, it was announced Bob Backlund against Big Bad Bobby Duncan, Texas Deathmatch. Okay. And the, the people are not supposed to notice this, but uh, Bob Backlund comes in, in, in into the ring without belt in his waist. Ah, Texas heavy Texas death match okay. to settle the score from the pre- previous month, and Hisashi Shima, you know, his manager, but at the time WWE figurehead president. Okay, he is holding brand new purple leather uh, WWE belt that, uh, and the Japanese photographer takes photos. Right, that that the reporting that the, this is the title, you know, that the vacant vacant WWE title up for grabs. So. And then, sure enough, Bob Backlund beats Bob Bobby Duncan and get the belt back. And in Japan, it was Inoki. Instead, they did the Anthony Inoki's World Martial Arts Heavyweight Title against Iron Sheik, and somewhat undercard. Inoki, of course, beat Iron Sheik, and Bob Backlund beat, beats Bobby Duncan to become WWF Champion again. But uh, Vince Vince McMahon's eyes that uh, Anthony Inoki, as a promoter, he double-crossed his father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he talked about it all the way to like year two thousand. He double crossed my father. <laughs> yeah, did you know that? No. Uh, so, yeah. what what are people's feelings on it now, if any? I mean, who? Anyone's. I like the general fan perception on it. 
especially Vince. Oh, it was what uh, 1970, I mean, 1979, 40 years ago. You're not supposed to remember any of that. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? All the fans, you know, will say, still, you know, like uh, somewhat puzzled. Oh, they, you know, we thought, you know, they were going to have Anto Inoki against Bob Backer in the rematch at the Madison Square Garden. That never took place. Oh, my gosh. You know, and Inoki instead defended his WWF martial arts title. And uh, Bob Backlund had uh, that uh, title up for grab match against Big Bob Bobby Duncan, and he got the title back. Oh, that was the end of the story, you know. And then uh, Inoki never challenged WWF title again after that. Yeah, and in in the states over here, it was always uh, kind of positioned like the heavyweight title was never on the line, and they always talked about it as if it was the International Martial Arts Championship. And so there was always, this, yeah, yeah. it was always unclear because you would read it in a magazine saying WWE yeah, World it's, title. We have to remember it was a way, I mean, decades before the internet, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, Japanese press, you know, who gathered, uh, I mean, all kinds, Tokyo, not, not just weekly pro wrestling, weekly gang, but the Tokyo sports, the Nikan sports, the, the whatnot, weekly fight, all these, the, the newsstand sports pages and wrestling magazines that covered wrestling, they were all there. Ringside photographers, mm. everything, reporters. But they pretty much agreed that, right, title match between, uh, rematch between Inoki and Babak ain't happening. And instead, Inoki defended his martial arts title, and uh, they never even mentioned Texas Deathmatch between Bob Backlund and, and Bobby Duncan that they reported as title up for grab, and Bob Backlund won the title again, and then again Bob Backlund the champion. See, hmm. it was like after a long prog- program, like 77, 78, 79, Antonio Inoki in Japan challenged Bob Backlund for the title, you know, three or four times. And uh, if you know anything at all about 1978, 77, 78, 79 version of Antonio Inoki, it's like unbeatable, right? I mean, those were the kind of golden years for that time for his career, too. Yeah, and then uh, Inoki challenging uh, WWF title, and the champion is what, the 29, 30-year-old young Bob Backlund. And the first match they did was a uh, two out of three, four match. So Inoki had, you know, Inoki and Bob Beckham each had one fall, and they ran out of time and did the 60-minute Broadway. <sighs> Easy, right? Mm. And the second, third time, so they had to be really creative to get out of it. Sure. Yeah. Then the uh, fourth title match, Inoki actually beat him to become champion on television, and he actually wore the WWE belt on TV and then and, and pretty much became w, you know, first WWE champion. I mean, first WWE Japanese Japanese WWE champion in history, and it's never been acknowledged in America. It, Whereas, was ne- it would never yeah. be acknowledged on TV. You could only find little asterisk notes about it in like a <laughs> Pro Wrestling Illustrated magazine or something, but or you know, old observer or but, some fanzine culture yeah, before that- the internet. You know, Madison, like, it was like lost results. knowledge. It was like forbidden knowledge. You couldn't really yeah, know. Yeah, I think exactly. so. Yeah. But they, all in all, they got out of it. Inoki won the WWF title in Japan. They forfeit the title because he wasn't happy about it. The Taiga Jitsing, you know, interference and all these things. And uh, Inoki never lost the title. And each 
you know, superstar Inoki and Bob back and pretty much both, you know, this say, you know, like a face saving thing, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, Bob Backlund after that, you know, came to Japan a number of times and he defended his WWF title against Fujinami. How's that? That's right. While he was WWF champion. Yeah, it wasn't Inoki anymore. That the Inoki's done with the program. It was now heavyweight Tatsumi Fujinami challenging right. a very similar style Bob Backlund. Yeah. So yeah. that worked for, you know, for everybody's win-win situation, if you think about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But 83, 80, I mean, 82, 83, uh, when you look back, like hindsight, Bob Backlund's champion reign days are numbered, huh? Yeah. And, you know, I got to say, just from my, just my perspective, it's always seemed like Bob Backlund was a lot more popular as a WWF champion in Japan than he was over in New really? York. Really? I think so. I think in the big picture, kind of like when fans look back, especially, I think I think he was definitely more appreciated and well-respected at that time, whereas Bob Backlund was, he wasn't Bruno, you know. Yeah, but the, when I watched, you know, Bob Backlund in, at Madison Square Garden, my Christmas vacation, mm-hmm. of like 81, 82, I went to New York and attended Madison Square Garden show, and sure enough, that the, it was weird because there was a still like, a not a curfew, but the, that the, Madison Square Garden show last till like 11 o'clock at night and uh, Bob Backlund as a champion. They come in like a fifth match of this night and mm-hmm. people start leaving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, the reception and the huge, you know, the, the he, when he came in, it was like a huge pop though still. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was well, uh, well liked. I just I think that in the the big picture that people don't tend to remember those moments. They tend to look at it and compare it to guys like Bruno and Hulk Hogan and Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, and they look at it in that um, kind of retrospective big picture sort of way. Yeah, but in reality, Bob Backlund has his five years and ten month reign. That's a long reign. It's a long reign. It's not. It was one of the last long reigns. Seventy, yeah, seventy eight to you know December of eighty three until he you know he was beaten by Iron Sheik. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the end of, end of an era, obviously. But he carried Madison Square Garden for five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then again, it was before National. Expansion in 1984, that uh, beginning, beginning of WrestleMania era, or I, should, I should say, a sports entertainment era, huh? when WrestleMania was, you know, the, the first inaugural WrestleMania happened. People were calling it a renaissance of pro, pro wrestling, right? Mm. It changed, yeah. And what took place before the year 1984 almost didn't count. Right. 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 It was like a reset. Yeah, I think so. And actually, you see, more, a, lot, a lot of people still believe Vince McMahon's national expansion and uh, the, the whole conquer the world thing started in 1984, right? Mm. But actually, Vince, Ken, Vincent Kennedy McMahon bought the company from his father June of 1982, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, people didn't really acknowledge that then. It was like 
you know, uh, Vince McMahon Sr. was, you know, like 67 years old and was ready to retire. And he actually sold the company, didn't give that to him, that Vince McMahon, not as expensive as you know, people would assume. He was around $350,000. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's wasn't, a lot of money then. Wasn't there a but hockey the, team involved in that sale too? Am I crazy? Didn't, uh, yeah, the Capital the Wrestling Corporation. Yeah. Uh, the probably or a minor league baseball team or something they, they, people like, talk about i think there was something like it was all it was the wwf but it was also another property of the mcmahon's yeah Forget, let's put it I, this I it way the that, that uh, vince mcmahon senior had ad- other assets let's put it that way right that's that's yeah. right and also vince mcmahon senior at the time of this june of 1982 he wasn't the only stockholder there was a Phil Zacco and the, and the Bob Morella, Gorilla Monsoon, of course, and mm-hmm. Arnold Scolan. Mm-hmm. Manager so, Bob Backlund. Yeah, and also a big time, you know, like a big shot in the backstage area, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and Arnold, the, the young uh, Vince McMahon bought stock of Capital Sport Corporation from father and Gino, uh, the, the Bob Morella and Arnold Scolan and Phil Zacco, Philadelphia promoter, then actually promised father that uh, Freddie Blassie, classy Freddie Blassie would be hired for life. Something like that. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of those deals, right? Like a couple of guys were grandfathered yeah, like in. A, yeah, right. You got you to gotta keep these people. Yeah, no matter what. Company. Yeah. Then then changed his company title from Capital Wrestling Corporation to Titan Sports, if you remember Titan mm-hmm. Sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the moved he moved the office from New York City to, to uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. Before they moved to Stanford. It was Greenwich, Connecticut, you know, that they moved the uh, I guess that the Connecticut had the lower tax rate than the New York City or something. Mm-hmm. And it, Greenwich is is very close to New York City. Right, right. So it was the beginning of Tyrant Sports. And it was, the p- people still believe that it was almost like a myth that the year 1984, the whole big national expansion starts. Of course, it started. But as, as early as 80, summer of 82 and 83, the Vincent Kennedy McMahon were running WWF show in places like Los Angeles and San Jose in California. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of like rehearsing his national expansion. Then started signing all the big talent from other territories, like stole all the talent from AWA, of course, and uh, the, made uh, other NWA smaller territories. Skelton, like a Paul Orndorff was a huge star in Atlanta before WWF, Mr. Um, Mr. Wonderful. Roddy Piper was a big, huge star with Crockett, remember? Yeah. And it was also on and double, Portland. Double, yeah, and then double WTBS too, you know, that uh, Saturday Night TV then had a, something similar to Piper's Pit mm-hmm. already. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and also, uh, also Vince McMahon bought St. Louis, that the capital of National Wrestling Alliance. Yeah. Yeah. So, Didn't Larry Matisic uh, work for that? Yeah. Yeah. Segment? Because. He was pushed out of the central states or the, the NWA capital by wrestler promoters like Bob Geigel, that the uh, Harry Race, that the 
of all people, Vern Gagne, that uh, they, or Pat O'Connor, that they had to be former wrestler to be involved in wrestling promotion, right? And Larry Matisic worked directly under Sam Machinik, mm-hmm. who was retiring at mm-hmm. the time. And uh, Larry, you know, Larry Matisic himself ran his own Greater St. Louis Wrestling using Bruiser Brody as top talent. Mm-hmm. So there was two wrestling offices in St. Louis for a time being, like 1983. But those are the, another subject for another day. But the one by one, Vince McMahon started buying or start stealing, you know, like assigning talents away from other companies. And uh, he was going to buy AWA and uh, Vern wouldn't sell it. Instead, Vince McMahon decided to take all the talent from AWA. At the time, Hulk Hogan, of course, but the Adrian Adonis just let on Rick Martel or people like Jim Brunzel or even Crusher and Mad Dog, like uh, seniors. Or even Gene Oakland. Me and Gene Oakland, the most famous, you know, that the TV announcer of AWA, he just switched mm-hmm. sides, you know. Bobby and, Heenan. Uh, Bobby Heenan, of course. It was a big thing, you know, for a big blow for the, you know, AWA, of course. All the and stars. They, yeah, all the stars with the same, and uh, Dr. D. David Schultz at the time, the mm-hmm. Hulk Hogan's opponent. Then the same crew came to Bloomington, Minnesota and ran their own WWE show. Oh my gosh. You know? <laughs> yeah, same that was a big name. Yeah, that was the beginning of the end for AWA. Yeah, and uh, people in you know Minnesota at the time was I was there, you know, afraid that uh, are they gonna really take over? No, AWA is too strong. It's like a, well, it, Vern Gagne fought this war until what the 89, 90. I mean, like gotten smaller and smaller, but at the, at the same time, you know, Vern Gagne decided to you know keep up with time and signed the deal with like ESPN, if you remember the mm-hmm. Las Vegas TV taping, ESPN, AWA was on national television for a while. And also they did the thing like uh, Pro Wrestling USA, mm-hmm. you know, like the five, six different... Combination of different... Yeah, five, yeah. six different companies worked together to counter WWE and they went into Meadowlands instead of Madison Square Garden. And uh, they fought good, you know, good fight. But uh, Vince McMahon's vision was I mean way you know like a, the vision was strong I think and uh, yeah so that's Vince McMahon uh, of 1984 at the same time that uh, Vince decided to pull all his WWE superstars from New Japan that's that's what we're talking about today hmm. up until 84 yeah that uh, New Japan series tours were filled with WWE superstars, you know, Under the Giant, younger Hulk Hogan, Bob Ackland still made tours, uh, Dom Rocco, Paul Orndorff, Brian Blair, the, uh, the Adrian Adonis, of course, and Dick Murdoch. It was, Dick Murdoch was a, a little bit interesting case because he was working with New Japan all along, but uh, he started working uh, to taking WWE dates as a tag team partner of Adrian Adonis. They even got the tag team title, if you mm. remember. Yeah. And, but the, uh, some wrestlers like Dick Murdoch wanted to have both, you know, wanted to work both places. He could take WWE schedules, but he would still want to, want, want to honor, you know, Japan dates at the same time. But uh, Vince wouldn't let him, right? Mm. 
and a lot, a lot of wrestlers, you know, the, they, the New Japan had to change, uh, like, uh, all the American members, you know, like, American roster. And, uh, yeah, w w I was there. It's like, wow, it's no more Hulk Hogan. Andre still came in, but they still need to create, you know, other American, like, new American superstars in Japan. Yeah. It was good that the Brody himself, you know, switched from all Japan to New Japan in 1985. In 1985 alone, that was WrestleMania year, right? Mm -hmm. 1985 alone, Bruiser Brody and Antonio Inoki had like a seven single match series. <laughs> it was a big thing. It's very big, yeah. Yeah. So they, Inoki managed to have all these big tour and big shows without WWE superstars. That's what I'm trying to get. To. Mm. There was a balance still. Yeah, it didn't have to be WWF, you know. Mm. And WWE, WWF, I should say, that didn't really have television, local television in Japan. And uh, now that the fast forward a little bit, about five years, there was Nichibei Wrestling Summit, 1990, ah, okay. Tokyo Dome. Yeah, this was the WWF. Next part. Yeah. Yeah, WWF. And all Japan and New Japan, three major companies worked together to produce big, huge Tokyo Dome show, right? Mm -hmm. That was the year, actually, you know, Vince McMahon took the uh, Jap Japanese market a little bit more seriously. You see, Tokyo Dome Wrestling Summit was April of 1990, right? Mm -hmm. Vince came to Japan January and March in April. So like, he made three trips in four months period to put this thing pieces together. Uh, that's that's how serious. Yeah, that's yeah. Well, very serious. Yeah, that the uh, first trip, I believe, uh, I'm sorry if I was wrong, but the first trip for Vince to come to Japan was 1983. Actually, he signed Hulk Hogan's exclusive deal in Japanese hotel in 83. Oh. Yeah, yeah, because huh. still not under contract, but the, he wanted to sign Hulk Hogan when nobody was watching, right? So, yeah, so he, Hulk Hogan was having his regular tour with New Japan 83, and Vince McMahon flew himself to Japan, and he signed Hulk Hogan right in Japan. In 84, he came back again and pulled Hulk Hogan from the tournament. At the same time, he had a, 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 a meeting with all Japan. Baba, so that he was talking to both sides, you know, in 1984. He would be talking to Inoki, but he wants to have another meeting with Giant Baba in, in the, capital, uh, the, the capital hotel in Tokyo. Um, it's interesting, huh? Capital Tokyo Hotel. <laughs> but yeah, Vince McMahon, because he, his leverage was that uh, he, the, the Vince McMahon would let Dynamite Kid and Davy Boy will work all the Japan date. And we might, you know, Giant Baba or Japan and Vince McMahon could have partnership that point forward. For, for some reason, that didn't work out and never really, you know, all Japan, Giant Baba didn't really have WWE talent or anything, but Davy Boy and Dynamite Kid. But pretty soon, that, that they were pulled from too, you know, from all Japan tour too. And that was around the time that Dynamite Kid start hurting, you know, like a really, not. It, it was 1981, 1982 Dynamite Kid anymore. I mean, his body and what he did in the ring, you know, the, the, he wasn't the same. But, uh, yeah, uh, Vince McMahon 
did come back to Japan in 84 and had a meeting with Giant Papa too. But let's forward, uh, let's fast forward. 1990, January, March, and April. He made three trips to Japan in four months period. That's how serious Vince McMahon was about this wrestling summit, Tokyo Dome. It's like a lot. I mean, it's like a three different promoters, three different agenda though. That Baba decided to help this wrestling summit. It wasn't initially Giant Baba's idea to run Tokyo Dome. It was well, New Japan did that, you know. But uh, Tokyo Dome wasn't. I mean, Tokyo Dome for, for the record. Tokyo Dome opened for baseball in 1988, and uh, there was like a Mike Tyson Buster Douglas fight in '89, if you remember. Mm-hmm. Oh. Of course. Yeah, and nine, yeah nine, nine, 1990 was the year that uh, Inoki's New Japan started having regular, not so regular, but like a twice or so Tokyo Dome show, right? Mm-hmm. And Baba didn't think Tokyo Dome was good for wrestling, and the Budokan was a perfect size, like Madison Square Garden. Sure. But uh, Vince McMahon was going to come to Japan on his own, I mean, sooner or later, you know, to run WWE show in Japan on their own. But uh, at the time, Vince McMahon was still testing like a water that uh, should should he work with local promoter, right? Mm. And uh, he wouldn't talk to Inoki. But Inoki, by 1990, he was a politician. He was right. not with wrestling. And Vince McMahon went straight to Giant Baba. Let's have a show together, right? Mm-hmm. Didn't you see. Apparently didn't think that, that, that Vince McMahon could run all Americans, you know, WWF superstar show in, at the Tokyo Dome. They, he even felt that he needed some local talents mm-hmm. or, or the old Japan or new Japan to work, you know, I mean, like a local, you know, help. And it was giant Baba's idea was that this Vince McMahon would come to Japan on his own sooner or later. Right. Mm-hmm. Let's work this Tokyo Dome match to prevent them from coming in for on their own. Mm. And new president of New Japan Pro Wrestling after Inoki left, it was Seiji Sakaguchi. See, if it was Inoki, Baba and Inoki wouldn't sit on the same table, right? Right. But if if it was Seiji Sakaguchi, Baba would uh, always willing to sit down and have cup coffee with him. Mm. They were friends, you okay. know, initially from Nippon Pro Wrestling. Right. And uh, now that the president of um, for real president of New Japan was Seiji Sakaguchi, and they uh, the Baba and Sakaguchi shook hand and right, let's work this Tokyo Dome Wrestling Summit show with WWE, and they wouldn't come to Japanese market on their own. We prevent that. So that the main event was, yes, uh, Hulk Hogan against Stan Hansen. Initially, it was Hulk Hogan against Terry Gordy. That was Terry Gordy that the Baba was going to feed Hulk Hogan. Because Hulk Hogan has to go over, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the Terry, uh, Terry Gordy, you know, looked at the you know, situation and said, uh-uh, I ain't doing it. I mean, this is like his home territory. He worked yeah, 20 weeks a year. At that time, year. yeah. Yeah, and then why would I, you know, have a main event? It's fine, but a single match against Hulk Hogan, and I'm going down, and then why would I do it, right? Then, then, then pretty much Terry Gordy quickly declined. And 
Giant Baba had to make a couple phone calls because Stan Hansen was already in Japan. But he didn't, the, the Baba didn't even know where to get a hold of him. He was living in Kawasaki or somewhere, you know. But anyhow, that Stan Hansen said, right, I'll do it. And he knew the way, you know, I mean, so smart that Stan Hansen and Hulk Hogan would have a spectacular single match and Hulk Hogan would be beating Stan Hansen. But at the end of the night, both guys will shine. You know what I mean? That uh, with this ox bomber, that uh, Hulk Hogan did beat Stan Hansen at the Tokyo Dome main event. But after that, it didn't hurt Stan Hansen one bit. Yeah, it was interesting. I learned something. Yeah. Why don't you think it hurt Stan Hansen ultimately? Why? Why, why didn't it, he? Yeah, because it di it didn't seem like that. It didn't seem like uh, it was effective. He went right back to his usual he was. Japan tour, and that was that. The monster heel, and the main guy. Yeah. It, the way they put together a match, and also, like, the, the elements were that uh, Stan Hansen didn't use his signature, you know, the, the Western Lariat. See, if he used the, the, the Lariat, you would have to have Hulk Hogan kick out at the counter too, right? Mm -hmm. They might as well not use it. Instead, very similar looking ox bomber the, the right arm lariat you know the hulk hogan used as a finish in japan it mm -hmm. wasn't a big um signature uh leg drop in america you know that that's american finish it was like hulk hogan's and stan hansen doing pretty much japanese match in content and stan hansen okay let's put it that way they don't have a chance to use his you know signature western lariat uh, Hulk Hogan instead used his uh, ox, ox bomber clothesline and pinned his real quick one, two, three. And just as soon as Stan Hansen get pinned one, two, three, he gets up and starts brawling. Oh my God, rah, 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 you know, and then it's like people probably almost forgot the finish. <laughs> sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And the match was good. You know, that the, they tease double count out three times. You know, like when you start fighting outside the ring, you know, you start kind of start kind of like smelling the double count, double count finish coming, right? Right. Yeah. You're anticipating very, dis that. very disappointing, right? Yeah. Instead, they went back to ring and people clapped. Oh, good, good, good. The fight continues. Then second time, they went outside the ring and they fought, start fighting outside the guardrail to the table, broadcasting table all, all over the Tokyo Dome floor. And people will think, oh, double count finish coming, right? Then they went right, you know, went back to the ring for the second time. Then third, they did a couple, three times, so people were kind of almost satisfied. Hmm. They didn't give you double count of disappointing finish. It was a clean finish. Stan Hansen lost the match, but at least they give you a clean finish that people are happy about it. Yeah. Fair, fair trade, I suppose. Because you're not going to get a clean yeah, finish. Yeah, and also it was any, like an all-star... Yeah, it was an all-star card that the initial meeting of Macho Man Randy Savage against Genichiro Tenru with Sherry Martel in, in, in Macho Man's corner. I think one of and, the best of all time. Yeah. It's like a chemistry. Yeah. They were perfect. Like, they were perfect either, for each other. Yeah, it's like either it'll be super good or super bad, huh? It was super good, I think. Yeah, super, yeah, I think so. Uh, Sherry and, Martel was amazing in that too. And also, female 
manager outside the ring interfering matches that way. It was pretty new for Japanese fans in 1990. She was the best example uh, to do it. She was the best to demonstrate that. Yeah. And uh, each, you know, each guy's, uh, the, the Tenru, Macho Man Randy Savage, they did all the signature moves and had a mm. great match. Very satisfying, right? And Giant Baba and Under the Giant made a tag team for the first time. Like two giants, right? And going up against Demolition. And it's like, wow, yeah, that's like, you already read it, you know? Of course, somebody's going to beat Demolition Smash. But uh, yeah, it was like Under the Giant and Giant Baba teaming up for the first time. Two giants in the ring. And then Demolition, perfect opponent, right? Mm. Yeah. And New Japan did provide two matches. Liger against Akira Nogami, right? And it was Masa Saito, Hashimoto against Riki Choshu and Chono or something like that. It's like something you can watch in New Japan ring. You know, didn't really blend or mingle with WWE Superstar. That was New Japan's choice. Mm. They just yeah, initially they match. were yeah, yeah. So they co-promoted. Initially, they were announcing matches like some the the Ricky Choshu, the, the Greg Valentine, the 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 you know Rick Martel, Mr. Perfect, or such that they they were gonna mix with New Japan wrestler, but they didn't do it. You know, New Japan brought their own two matches: Liger against Akira Nogami and Masa Saito, Ricky Choshu, Chono Hashimoto in it. And you're not supposed to remember the content almost because I don't remember what happened, you know. But uh, yeah, they did. This. But the New Japan did work. And also there was uh, downside was that Ted DiBiase as 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 a million dollar man challenged Ultimate Warriors um, WWF title, and uh, they did the exact WWF match. Uh, wasn't squash, but it only like seven minute match that the Ultimate Warrior beat Ted DiBiase clean. But Ted DiBiase in Japan was a huge superstar, mm. you know, three, two, three years earlier, you know, with Stan Hansen's, Hansen's partner. tag team partner, yeah. And then also Terry Funk's sidekick when he was young, and he had regular tour all through the end of 70s into early part of 80s, all the way to like 87, you know. Great, uh, until great he, matches with DiBiase and All Japan. Tons. Yeah, yeah, DiBiase and Dickie Slater, Terry Funk, yeah, and going up against somebody like Stan Hansen. Then Ted DiBiase turned on Terry Funk and turned heel and he became Stan Hansen's regular partner after Brody left. He was a huge star. But uh, that the costume would, would tell you everything that... Ted DiBiase comes in with a million dollar man costume and he's a million dollar man Ted DiBiase and did the WWF match, you know? So Japanese wrestling fans, I mean, like a live crowd, you know, understood, right? This is WWF match, the WWF show. And that was the only thing. And also that uh, uh, I cannot confirm it, but from what I gathered that uh, like two or three weeks earlier, right? WrestleMania six took place. Mm-hmm. Hulk Hogan, uh, Ultimate Warrior, beat Hulk Hogan to become WWF champion. So mm-hmm. at the Tokyo Dome, WWF champion was Ultimate Warrior, but he was not on the main event. He defended his WWF title against Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase, but he was like a third or fourth from top. The main event was still not non-champion, but the Hulk Hogan. 
against Stan Hansen. That's like an ultimate, I mean, like an automatic main event in Japan. Hmm. So do you think it made the WWF Difference? title mean, uh, mean less? Uh, actually, it was more complicated because I don't think Vince McMahon told Jan Baba beforehand that Hulk Hogan wouldn't be coming in as champion. I see. see. I see. Yeah, Japanese promoter side always assumed that Hulk Hogan would be at the Tokyo Dome as WWF champion. I'm no question about it, right? Yeah. He would think. And uh, they, Baba didn't really know, or Vince McMahon himself didn't tell Giant Baba that uh, Hogan would be dropping the title two weeks earlier. Hmm. That would probably you know, change some things too, you know, that Baba probably didn't trust him or something. Yeah. It must have been something. Um, yeah. But uh, Vince McMahon did what he would do, and Giant Baba would react the way he would react, and New Japan did what they had to do. Does that sound like it? Yeah. 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 That was but the uh, wrestling summit took place 1990, April. The only wrestling summit they had. You know, they were going to do it again, but they never happened. Wrestling summit just happened once. Summit. Like, you know, like a G7, you know, all the president and prime minister from every, you know, major com you know, countries gather for the conference, right? Mm -hmm. It's a summit. So they call it wrestling summit at the Tokyo Dome. WWF, New Japan, and Old Japan all work together for the first time and the last time. Interesting, huh? Yeah, and that was pretty much the end of the of WWF in the mainstream in Japan. Japanese scene until the 2000s. Actually, WWF had their own tour in 1994, infamous Mania Tour. Ah, this was with uh, Randy Savage and... Bret yeah, Hart yeah, and... on their own, you know, four shows. Yokohama Arena, Osaka, Hiroshima, and Sapporo. All big city, big arena. And actually, the, the, the roster was great. Champion Bret Hart, Undertaker was in it. Yokozuna, uh, Undertaker... Uh, Bret Hart, Macho Man Randy Savage, Yokozuna, Undertaker, Bam Bam Alejo Blaze, Bam Bam Bigelow, Bob Backlund, Smoking Guns, The Head Shrinkers, to Doink, to uh, One to Three Kid. Pretty much uh, healthy, big, I mean, like uh, your A-team tour. Yeah, expect, like the best of the in-ring guys, for sure. Yeah, and then uh, minus Hulk Hogan, because Hulk Hogan wasn't working there that, at the time, 94. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, oh, I'm sure that he was with WCW by then. That the uh, Bret Hart as a champion, Undertaker in it, Yokozuna in it, but the Macho Man Randy Savage still working WWF. Uh, that was superstar package, and they did not draw. Hmm. You know, Yokohama Arena, eighteen thousand capacity, and they had a, what? They had a, what? The four thousand, five thousand oh. tops. Sapporo, I mean, like empty Sapporo, you know. Hiroshima, uh, Osaka. It's like I don't think Japanese audience at the time were ready for all WWE superstar show. And they, 1994, there was no TV, that the satellite TV, that the, the regular TV, that the, you know Japanese fan can watch WWE programming. All they had was the VHS Coliseum video series. If you, do you remember Coliseum video? Oh, well, of course. That was, I mean, if you, because when you had a TV at home, like if you didn't tape it, I mean, if you missed the show, you missed the show. That was it. So the only other way to watch it, other than going to live, was renting those Coliseum home videos at yeah, Blockbuster yep. Video. Oh, yeah. 
exercise bots. Yeah, not be to all brag the, uh, about it. But yeah, the, you were on those. Yeah, WrestleMania through WrestleMania one through WrestleMania nine and all the initial Survivor Series and SummerSlam and Royal Rumble and all that. I did the Japanese voiceover. That's right. So if anybody can get their hands on those, you know, his voice. <laughs> it only exists in WCW. I mean, uh, the VHS tape. It's at I, it's still at my house because uh, that's VHS format. That the if I if my last VH VCR breaks, that's it. I can't watch it ever again. <laughs> uh oh, we have to preserve but, these. Uh, yeah, VH tape still exists at my house. But uh, yeah, I did one, WrestleMania one through WrestleMania nine with my voiceover on it. Wow, I'll have but to I'm check not those bragging out. about it because it wasn't all the greatest. I mean, it wasn't the popular, most popular tape. It was more of a UWF era, if you remember. Right, I mean, '94. <clears throat> excuse me, '94 was not uh, a, the best year to come in and try to make a mark in Japan because that's, I think, maybe when Japanese wrestling was around its its biggest and at its peak. With between yeah, and then uh, UWF, Japan, you know, break into three groups: Akira Maeda's Rings, Nobuhiko Takada's UWFI, Fujiwara's Fujiwara Gumi, and then they break off, and the Pancras was created. And at the same time, in the way, in the other side, extreme. That the spectrum, Atsushi Onita's FMW doing extreme death matches and uh, FMW spin-off like IWA Japan and Wing, they're doing all the death match series. In '95, there was you know Cactus Jacks and Terry Funk's you know the death match tournament at the Jingu Stadium. You remember that was the era. The WWF came in on their own like years too early, huh? It wasn't the best time and that's putting it mildly it was just but they didn't know why though right well it was an oversaturated market at the time i mean there were a lot of people going to shows and it's just american pro wrestling was not what people were interested in at the time and also japanese i have to admit japanese wrestling fans were very very biased that japanese wrestling were better than american wrestling or something Sure. I mean, it was arguable because at the time, if you're looking at it uh, financially, it's New Japan was making a lot more money than WWF was in the 90s. So if you look at it from the big picture, which it was hard to look at it from the big picture at that time, you know, because 25, 26 years later, we're sitting here talking about it. We can be pretty objective about it, right? Much more so than 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And also, I was making all these color pages on Weekly Pro, Shoe Pro, Pro Wrestling Magazine. Every week, I was putting American pages that they go like, why do you take up all these pages for this American stuff nobody's reading? Ooh, oh my gosh, you know. <laughs> yeah, I had to fight it. You know, to get my pages, you know, and I mean, well, a couple, three, four pages for WWF coverage, and a couple more, three more pages for WCW NWA coverage, and I wanted to have a couple more, three more pages for ECW pages too, you know, and some American independent scene too. Uh, give me pages, right? But uh, uh, they weren't really favorable, you know, like, uh, like I could only, you know, we could only give you the, so many pages for American stuff because we have FMW shows. You know, and '94 was also women, all Japan women's, you know, and in the promotion, just a boom period. Oh my God! I mean, it was just a, a peak time for so many different genres yes. of wrestling. Every week, Japan. you know, we were producing 160-page wrestling magazine every week, five-day turnaround. 
160 pages wrestling magazine every week, but it was still hard to get American stuff in, you know? It was, yeah, it was a great, I guess it was a great time for Japanese wrestling. It's just, um, I mean, it's the same on this side too. There's just, there was more interest in domestic product. People mm -hmm, were interested mm -hmm. in what they wanted. It was like years before when people were more interested in who was the champ in their territory. It grew because technology grew with television. And better products, production-wise. Everything improved. Then there was a pay-per-view, then satellite channel. Then the internet doesn't come to your everyday life until like 98. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Well, there was a people with Apple computers, but the people weren't sending emails to each other until like Windows 85, you know, 88. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Windows 95, I think. 95, 98, like, right, right. My first one was like Windows 98. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I didn't believe everybody and anybody and everybody, every single person would have a computer. You know, I didn't believe that, you know, but uh, now it's hindsight. That the, now it's like not even laptop, it's a smart smartphone, right? iPhone does everything. That's right. And it's, uh, it's different. And also that the moving image and the actual moving image of in the internet doesn't start to like 2005-ish, right? Right, right. It wasn't yeah. easy. You could mm -hmm. download things for a long time, but it wasn't until... Oh, the sending, just a still photo was like a, like a, like a space taking. I know. That was horrible. Yeah. yeah. So that the, it did grow with technology, you know? And with satellite channels, Sky Perfect TV and CS, that uh, communication satellite, all these, you know, multi-channel television, that the Japanese market was ready for American wrestling too by 1998. Yeah. So we lived through it though, right? Yeah. And from, from 98, 99 into the Attitude Era, uh, that's when WWE really carved out its niche and became... Yeah. Yeah. WWE that is in 2002 on, you know, W 2002, 2001. I think I believe it was 2002 at the Yokohama Arena that Rock and uh, that the uh, undisputed WWF and WCW champion Chris Jericho, you know, uh, they came to Japan and started having this, you know, their own WWF tour every year uh, after 2002, every year. But Vince McMahon never came with them. One year he was gonna going to come, okay, but he broke his hip or something and walking to Royal Rumble. Oh, that's right, that's right. Remember he that year? Quads or something? Yeah, yeah. If he didn't break his bone, that you know, walking to Royal Rumble, he was gonna come to Japan and does Vince McMahon thing in in Japanese ring. And that never happened. And since then, Vince McMahon hasn't been to Japan. So who would be in charge of those tours, uh, like a liaison? Oh, or... the agents, like black people, like a blackjack Lanza, or somebody like, or Arnold Scolan, of course, Mister Fuji, or you know the agents, Pat Patterson, probably somebody like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe not Pat Patterson, but they were agents. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, house show agents, they call it. Then later on, they renamed it as a producers. Sure. But the, today's WWE producer is rather young, right? Younger. You know, Adam Pierce doing the authority figure, that the people like Jamie Noble, that the, all these younger people, younger than this generation, they're in charge. Yeah.
not even Michael Hayes anymore. Remember, Arn Anderson, those people, Ricky Steamboat, they were in church, you know, between year 2000 to 2010, 15. Yeah, but now producers are a little younger with WWE too. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the. This a, yeah. I don't know the structure over there exactly, but yeah, it, generally it seems like it's it's younger and a wider circle than in Japan. Right, and when they, you know, when WWF has tour in Japan, it's another another house show that happens to be in Tokyo. How's that? I see. Yeah. I get that. Okay, did we cover enough? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. But if anybody yeah, has the, questions, we can... There has always been relationship, uh, whether it's uh, the partnership between Vincent James McMahon and Antonio Inoki, 1974 to 1984, then Vince McMahon in, in Japan, Vince McMahon Jr. Huh? But uh, right. they cut that off too. But uh, now he's only Vince McMahon, and no Jr. But the Vincent Kennedy McMahon era begins, and uh, the relationship with Japanese market drastically changed. And uh, Vince McMahon would do Vince McMahon way of things, right? And uh, Japanese market, local market, domestic market have countered, you know? And uh, it's, it's always been political, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess if, if there's something that we missed or there's a topic that we didn't touch on, we can. But with Triple H, I think Triple H in charge. Oh, I should add that the, Stephanie McMahon has been to Japan couple, three times in between, yeah. And Shane McMahon's been here too. And Triple H, even not working in the ring, he's been to Japan a couple, three times. Remember like a couple years ago, Triple H came to Japan trying to buy Stardom? That's right. I think it was around that time he he signed uh, Sari. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the William Regal uh, was a big part of that too. Now it's AEW, but the William Regal knows Japanese market a little bit better than Triple H, maybe, huh? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, and those people. And uh, the Triple H had this vision that the NXT Japan could work. That hasn't happened yet. You know, maybe he's he might do that again. I don't know. But the, well, NXT the pandemic Japan, changed a lot of plans. <clears throat> yeah, lot, yeah, yeah. Right, right. But the NXT Japan. Just can you imagine? I I can't. I can't really <laughs> because I don't know if it would run out of Japan or would it run somewhere else or would it be better to start something like NXT Asia where it could be Japan and other countries or what they thought in in the NXT Japan would be in Japan and what Triple H thought NXT Japan would be was two different pictures. It was more like. Triple H sending American rookies to Japanese dojo system and film everything until he debuts, like a mixed documentary. That's NXT Japan. Whereas Japanese local independent company thought that the the NXT Japan will have dojo, I mean, American dojo in Japan that they want to join. You know what I'm saying? I see. The the people had different vision of things, you know. NXT Japan meant something in Japan, right? But for Triple H's vision, it was like a doing Japanese dojo system with American interpretation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kind of using it too. Yeah, I'm almost hoping that they will do it again. Well, things are different now. Who knows? I mean, it really depends first on the, on the, the boundaries opening up 
internationally and and the visa situation between japan and the u.s i think that's once that's yeah, completely yeah but interestingly enough this covid 19 situation stopped everything as of 2020 you know yeah there was a it, there seemed to be plans and and then i think they pulled the office out of japan didn't they Oh, uh, yeah, they did. Yeah. yeah. But then again, it was not like, uh, you know, walking away from Japanese market. The Singapore and Shanghai, China became bigger market or the mm. marketing place for WWE. Not with wrestling people, but the WWE's marketing division people, different kind of mindset. Mm -hmm. They're not wrestling people. It's more like marketing, you know, selling merch all over the world kind of thing. Yeah, different approach. And copyright things, you know what I'm saying? Like licensing their goods, you know, all over the world. Yeah. So sometimes WWE is like run by wrestling people. And a lot of times it's like more like a corporate, you know? Yeah. I'm and hoping that, that this... It's so big, so it has to be a kind right, of right. balance between the two. Yeah, because today's, you know, co-CEO of WWE, Nick Khan, is not exactly a wrestling person. Mm -hmm. But he's more of a sports person, and he has yeah. a, a different kind of background. So maybe just yeah. we'll see a different. But I'm approach. hoping that with, with with you know with Triple H being in charge of all creative, and have better understanding in Japan about Japanese market and Japanese wrestling, and I'm hoping that they have you know he'll open up the friendly friendly relationship once again. Mm. Could be. I Let's mean, see. win win for both sides. That's business, right? Right. Yeah. So yeah. I it was just we were talking top of a head, but uh, I think we covered a lot today. Yeah, so <laughs> I think we covered the, the McMahon's relationship to Japan and WWF's relationship to Japan. All the all the Vincent important. James McMahon to James uh, Vincent Kennedy McMahon mm -hmm. to now Triple H and Stephanie McMahon. Yeah, and don't call him Junior. Don't forget that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'm I'm just WWF should should come back here. You know the fans waiting. Yeah. It's been a while, hasn't it? Maybe yes. two years, three years? Uh, since summer of 2019. Yeah. yeah. Mm. The pandemic starts 2020, right? Yep. So, so. yeah, it was some of, some of 2019 then, Gosh. right? So they haven't been here three years. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm sure they'll be there soon. I don't know. I don't know when, but... In the meantime, you know, something like the Zoom, you know, that the live streaming internet television thing, yep. they had the live WWE programming. That's right. In Japan, they did, yeah. Over yeah, yeah. in the North America, they don't. They most they carry more boxing. Oh, the zone, yeah, because it's a UK company. UK and company. That was yeah. yeah that was the last issue. time I did the live live uh, voiceover. Right. The the contract ended with J Sports. I think. Right. Right. Beginning right. of the year. So. And no WWE on TV, and I've been watching WWE Raw and SmackDown on YouTube one day late. <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah. That's, that's the situation at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Open the market, please. But actually, you know that the cable TV and the J Sports people told me that the, their contract money, the annual fee, skyrocketed. You know. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah. So WWE became very expensive product in, for Japanese market. Yeah, and I yeah. wonder what will uh, happen going forward if the. Uh, if if ownership changes in that, like uh, if it's sold, 
Prince. Yeah, because like uh, we can compare that with UFC. UFC is also expensive if you have like licensing contracts and stuff like that. But they UFC treat Japanese market a little bit differently, and they created secondary channel fighting channel for Japanese market. Did they like a UFC fight pass sort of thing, or? Yeah, yeah, and a little package for Japanese market only. Yeah. Well, I think the people at UFC completely understand the, the market business of MMA. They understand where it came from and they understand how it came up in Japan. And I think that it has to be tailored to Japan, especially just because it's, it's a different, it's not a completely different approach, but it's, it's really smart to, to think uh, like that, like localizing it. Yeah, localizing then, it. Also, wrestling business or sport business, for that matter, is not completely independent from what's happening in the real world and the real economy out there. Mm -hmm. U.S. economy is so much stronger than Japanese economy right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that has a lot to do with it too. Mm, it's all very interesting. Yep. Well, I want to see what happens okay. going forward. So we'll just yeah. kind of keep our eye on. And the story. a lot to do with pandemic right now too. Yeah. Pandemic yeah. ending, you know. Go, yeah, the, go, to, the pause, everything. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe the, some of the plans that we were just talking about, maybe we'll start to see, I don't know, some kind of momentum coming some way between WWE and and another company. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. And Japanese, the WWE will have run run their live show again in Japan. That's probably what will happen first, and I think what will happen, hopefully, maybe next year. I imagine if if everything uh, if everything runs smoothly, I, I can't say. I don't know if it will, but we'll see. It depends on yeah. what happens. But if we missed anything, you can reach out to us. If uh, people have questions for you, Fumi, how can they uh, ask? Uh, you on Twitter at Fumihiko Dayo, F U M I H I K O D A Y O at Fumihiko Dayo on Twitter, or just Fumi Saito on Facebook. Message me first. And on Twitter, I'm at Justin M. Nipper, K-N-I-P-P-E-R. Reach out to us if you have questions or comments. Otherwise, until next week, Fumi, take it away. So long from Tokyo. Tokyo.